Masterclass session where we uh, speak to industry leaders and experts on all things digital. Uh, today we have uh, Vasu Gavarsana joining us. Vasu is a very senior digital marketing leader uh, who is extremely passionate about uh, creating best-in-class data-driven uh, omni-channel customer experiences. Uh, he's an insurance industry expert as well, having led large-scale digital initiatives uh, at AXA, IAG and Insurance House UAE. Uh, Vasu's uh, professional career has been built on a very strong foundation of working with global digital agencies and internet businesses uh, like Lintas, TWA, uh, McCann, Bates and Yahoo. Uh, he has displayed a lot of entrepreneurial spirit as well, helping multiple startups. Vasu currently leads the digital mandate at Royal Sundram as its chief digital officer. Um, interestingly, uh, Vasu has also authored a book that captured, uh, captures his personal uh, experiences. Uh, with digital evolution and transformation. It's titled uh, Digital Lipstick on a Legacy Pig. Uh, you know, as fun as the title sounds, it's a fun read as well. It's very quick and insightful read. I highly recommend it. It's on Amazon. And uh, if you have a Kindle Unlimited subscription, it's actually free. Um, so what's when I will be talking today about uh, the foundational elements uh, of building a great digital brand experience. So Vasu, uh, welcome to the show. And uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time out. Thank you for the flattering introduction. I think it's a little bit too flattering than I deserve, perhaps. <laughs> no, no, thank no. you. Thank no, you. I thank thoroughly you. Uh, deserve it. I know that. So, yeah, you know, in fact, that's a great place to start. I mean, you, you know, you've had a, a storied career over three decades now, Vasu. Just, uh, you know, uh, you're sort of looking at, the, you're starting almost from pre-internet in, in uh, advertising and marketing. And then you've sort of seen the entire... Uh, evolution of digital happen to to wherever we are today, where you know it's it's profoundly complex um, and challenging to sort of uh, you know to think and run digital, right? So you know it would be great if you can just maybe talk through a little bit about your experiences and how uh, where you are today um, uh, and how you think about digital transformation today. Uh, you know goes back to some of your work experiences. So maybe that's a great place to start. Absolutely. So I kind of look back uh, using a lens of digital. Um, so when I kind of break it down, there are two parts uh, that have led me to where I am today. The first part is uh, when I was studying at Yale University, I had the preview of the internet as we know today. In the back in the day, it was known as a, it was a DARPA project. The DARPA is the American Defense Agency. And all the, uh, you, uh, a few universities were connected through the DARPA network, um, which, which was the backbone and, and in fact the founder of the internet, while it's attributed to Lee Berners, Berners, right, for his full name. But actually before that, uh, the technical and technology foundation goes back to the DARPA project. Uh, so I, that was my, so we were sending emails. I was at Yale and I had a friend in uh, Berkeley. And I was sending him, I can't remember what we were calling it. We were definitely not calling email. Uh, but we were sending messages between the two campuses without having to make a phone call. As a student, you're poor. You don't have money to make long-distance phone calls. So, but as you can see, I wasn't smart enough like uh, Jeff uh, Bezos or, you know, one of those uh, Zuckerbergs to understand the commercial value uh, that it would have unleashed in the world, uh, you know. But I think what I did benefit from it to see how that can help shape my career. So that very early influence stayed in my mind. We also, uh, because of where we were, we also had 
uh, I would say the first batch of laser printers from Hewlett Packard were sent to us, uh, not just our university, a few universities were. And also the chairman of uh, IBM at the time by a gentleman by name John Akers was a Yale alumni. Yeah. And the very first batch of PS2, I don't know if uh, probably most of you will never heard of that. Uh, and from an advertising perspective, it had a great Charlie Chaplin campaign uh, back in the day. It was very famous. So we had the, the first batch of PS2 uh, desktop computers from IBM. We had the first batch of Hewlett Packard uh, laser printers. And we had DARPA. So you literally, if you really look at fast forward today, you had the internet you had a laser printer and you had the best desktop in the business, right? <laughs> so that, that combination uh, would definitely where my curiosity was. Yeah. That is from my education days. And I kept that thread. Um, so wherever it was not known as digital, uh, honestly, I don't remember in the yeah. student days calling it. Yeah, that digital is more recent. Yeah, I would say, you know, the last five plus not 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, we, I think we were using uh, multimedia, I think was the word that we were using back then. Desktop publishing because of Apple. Uh, so some of those terms that we were using. So whenever that came up, uh, as I progressed my career, I would always raise my hand, having, having some exposure to what that meant. Um, and as I raised my hand in, uh, in forums, in offices, I got got picked to get involved uh, in a lot of these initiatives around the world. And one such notable um, involvement was with uh, Barnes & Noble in the US. So it was at that time managed by Shia Dave, which is a, now part of TBW, a very famous uh, ad agency. And I was in TBW at Bombay. Yeah. And I had the opportunity of being part of the Barnes & Noble task force to take on Amazon. And this was many, many, many decades ago. And uh, taking on, a, at the time, they were only selling books. Yeah, exactly. They were not, uh, I, yeah, they were not for, into it. For that part, you know, I, I saw that as well, uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that you've done this. And I'm curious to see what the environment was like at that point in time. And what were some of the things that, uh, that maybe you told Barnes & Noble and how did that play out? I'm just very uh, intrigued by... How, how, you know, because you were at the, it looks like you were in the thick of action then. So what were some of the things that you probably told Barnes & So the crisis, yeah, the crisis was sparked by a full page ad by Amazon and New York Times, where they took a full page on uh, buying, you can now buy books. I don't think the word online was used back then. I have to go back and see what they used, but essentially they shook up the whole industry. Yeah. And Barnes & Noble for those in other parts of the world is, or the largest book uh, bookstore chain in the At United time, States. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's like the Indian Higginbotham. Yeah, yeah, kind of the Indian Higginbotham is the equivalent. Yeah. Or W. H. Smith, if you are from the UK, and, and they panicked. They did not really know. Uh, they knew it was some kind of a threat. Didn't fully understand what that threat was. Uh, did not know how to respond to it, and but were clearly panicking. And that's why they reached out to Chai. They not just. I'm sure they reached out to consult and they reached out to a whole bunch of people. But they clearly saw, because it was an ad in a New York Times, uh, they naturally also reached out to the ad agency and said, like, what, what do you guys make of this? How do you think we should respond to this? And I clearly remember our uh, group uh, saying that it's advertising, counter-advertising is not the answer. Yeah. 
it's not about product feature versus probably we have more books than them. I'm not, not, that's not the kind of fight. This is a paradigm shift in selling books. And therefore, Barnes & Noble had to kind of rethink its business, uh, not just uh, taking an attack ad. Uh, but none of us had very clear answers back then. I think the early decision was to do bn.com, barnesandnoble.com, yeah. uh, and uh, try to mimic and catch up with uh, the Amazon uh, competitor. Yeah. I think one of, the, one of the things they started doing after that, they started to create a much better, I think which one of your questions that you're answering, a better in-store experience. Because one of the... Uh, propositions that we suggested as their agency at the time, and I'm sure some of their consultants as well, yeah. saying that the only way to differentiate is you need to have a store experience that is significantly superior to buying a book online. Yeah. And I think, I think that was probably, uh, I don't recall before that because at the time I wasn't living in the U.S. But when I was living in the U.S., um, I do recollect that Barnes & Noble didn't have many coffee shops. It was yeah. not part of the standard format. Yeah. There were a few, obviously, exceptions. But I think they began to understand that the store experience had to significantly be uh, better and differentiated, and, where, and that's where they would probably win over. And so, therefore, I think they eventually got into Starbucks uh, setting up uh, coffee shops within the bookstore, they changed the bookstore uh, interior design. They made it more like a library um, a feel than a bookshop, Got which I think had stood them well uh, over the decades. Um, many other competitor uh, chains, um, Borders, for example, uh, while it's not as big uh, as uh, Barnes & Noble in the US, yeah. even Singapore had a very large border store. Yeah. Um, they did not adapt and uh, they, they died. Yeah. But Barnes & Noble still is a fairly vibrant book, bookstore even today in the U.S. Yeah. So uh, fast forward to today, uh, you know, from, from the Barnes & Noble versus Amazon days to today, I mean, obviously, uh, one could say there's uh, almost been a digital, uh, digital explosion, if you will. And so what, maybe it's a good point uh, to ask you first, before we go into the pillars uh, of what a great brand experience should look like, digital brand experience should look like, uh, to really understand why is it challenging, especially for enterprises, uh, to think of digital and to go digital in a committed fashion. So maybe that's a good sort of segue, uh, you know, fast forwarding to today. And uh, enterprises today, you could argue, are grappling with digital the same way Barnes & Noble was grappling with Amazon. Right? So why is it challenging? Excellent question, Subra. I wish most people ask the same question uh, within enterprises. I have, in, in whatever I've seen over the last uh, two decades and more, is that uh, the understanding between IT and digital uh, is not clear to many people. Yeah. And therefore, what happens is uh, by implementing IT, a lot of times they think they're implementing digital. I think that to me is trap number one. Trap number two, and I should be careful what I say, um, there are some IT people in order to sustain their careers yeah. would smartly package what they're doing in IT as digital. Yeah, so to, for their survival and success, I have nothing against people who, I'm not making a judgment call, 
um, but would package part of IT as digital. Uh, and I think that also caused some confusion with senior management when their own technology people were saying, well, this is digital. So I think that to me is still today the fundamental barrier to digital adoption is a lack of that differentiation uh, even today is very poor. I mean, I have a lot of people commenting recently that the world is going digital. And when I ask people, what do you mean by that? They say, oh, we're not talking on Zoom. I said, yeah, but we had Skype almost like a, a decade ago. So how is that any different? Yeah. yeah, now the experience is easier, but essentially what we're doing on Zoom is what we were doing in Skype 10 years ago. Yeah. So what has really changed? Yeah, there are more people using it, Yeah, of course. And uh, the same thing is happening in WhatsApp video as well. So what has really changed? And then the people start to struggle to kind of, then they say, oh, okay. And, and they don't have an answer because, yeah. uh, and these are people in companies. I'm not talking to yeah. So to me, like is to sum that up, I think that is barrier number one. Barrier number two, other, other than uh, companies in FMCG or CPG, uh, if you're listening to this in the US, have a very, uh, uh, very restricted view of the consumer if you're in B2C or a customer if you're in B2B. Yeah. And they're, they're looking, uh, most, of, most of enterprises are very internal, inward looking. Yeah. And I think that hurts a great deal and especially insurance is probably uh, guilty of that charge uh, at, for a significant degree and not because people want to be inward looking i think this in nature the evolution of the business was you know on the back of intermediaries you know like insurance agents so your outlook only ended to the customer who yeah. is aged but not to the consumer because as long as you serve your customer and peddle whatever products you wanted to the customer, you never had to focus on the consumer. Yeah. And uh, marketing was not really important because you were just selling, right? You had a distributor. Um, and you, even today, when you ask sometimes to name what insurance company did you buy your uh, policy from, a lot of people, top of mind, cannot recall the name, but uh, on the back of their hand, they know the name of the insurance agent. Yeah. So who is the brand? Is it the insurance agent, the brand, or is it the insurance company is the brand? Yeah. So I think a whole lot of these things, uh, lack of the uh, consumer being at the focal point, as a focal point. Uh, again, like I said, the earlier point I made is not understanding the difference between digital and IT. I think these are, to me, the primary barriers to digital adoption. Got it. So, so just to summarize again, so uh, sort of misunderstanding IT versus digital. Uh, so not really taking digital as a separate initiative, but really trying to mishmash it with IT in, in sort of uh, for, for whatever vested reasons that there might exist uh, and really not being customer centric, but maybe more inward looking. I think you are saying these are probably the three sort of big challenges um, uh, that that enterprises have. Right. Yeah. Uh, because if you go if you go and do a survey around the world and look at the number of people leading digital, most of them. Uh, at least in insurance, and I've not done this outside in other categories, are coming from IT backgrounds. Yeah. And some of them are smart enough to understand the role of the consumer, but most of them are hostage to their uh, technical expert expertise in IT. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so you can't really uh, blame them for having an IT view of digital because 
if you put somebody, if you put a veterinarian in a seat and ask them to treat human beings, the lens that vet will look at is from a lens of an animal. And he will justify saying, well, a human being is an animal as well. Yeah. Yes, we are, but you can bring wet signs to, to human bodies, right? That's, that's kind of and I thought, in some And in some way, that's maybe why you uh, titled uh, your book as well. Uh, you know, because when you have a worldview of this kind, then it's eventually digital lipstick uh, on, on a legacy pick, right? Legacy being Correct. IT here. And you just try Correct. to, uh, you know, sort of, uh, make it seem like there's a lot of digital going on, but it's all very superficial, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So then, therefore, uh, for enterprises that are really trying to do uh, digital transformation, uh, what what should they do? What are the pillars now? If we start talking about it, how how should they start going about digital transformation, and what are the pillars or foundations on which they should base something like this? And the most important one, I think, is to embrace uh, beyond uh, statements that the consumer, if you're in B2C or like I said, or a customer is uh, the focal point or the focus for the company. And I don't mean just saying, saying it in a town hall because it sounds nice. Yeah. Right? And they really have to mean it and they have to act on it. I think that is the fundamental uh, promise that uh, the boards and the management have to make. Yeah. Uh, to themselves, right? To themselves, not to the employees first, right? Uh, because saying it's very easy, um, yeah. but then how do you execute that? If you have that commitment to the customer and the consumer, I think it's not too much of a leap then to say, uh, to justify why digital is important. Because digital is important because it reaches out not only to your customer, to your consumer as well. There are a lot of uh, cost arguments in favor of doing digital. So yeah. that's not, yes, there is an initial upfront investment, yeah. Uh, but you can, you know, over the years, uh, you can spread that cost over the years and make a, a fairly good uh, return on investment. So that I would say number, number one. Number two is having a independent unit uh, that is focused completely on digital. Yeah. Because what happens is when you, when you marry BAU, which is business as usual, uh, SOPs and mindsets. Yeah. With the uh, with what digital inherently needs uh, is a is a mismatch, and becomes a mishmash also, right? So when you become a mishmash, and there's a mix-up, then you have uh, conflict of philosophies. Yeah. You have conflict of SOPs, standard operating procedures, and then you have conflict of egos of who is you know right. I've been in this company for twenty years. I've been doing this fairly well. Who are you to tell me that this does not work anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this, this unit has to be completely independent. It needs to, uh, given the uh, empowerment, uh, to be able to act and make decisions, obviously in a responsible way, in a profitable way, under the governance of the CEO or the management that is overseeing the digital unit, if it's a steering committee, a steering committee. Uh, but that without the independence of a digital unit, uh, this again will not succeed. Yeah. It will fail if you try to mix, right? And it's very important, therefore, to find, even if people are coming from a BAU background, is to find the right mindset. Yeah. Is people who are, because the world's are very different. As I wrote in my book, uh, and I also mentioned in my podcast, digital and IT define perfection, uh, perfectionism very differently. Yeah. Uh, IT obviously uh, cannot, nothing can go wrong because it's a bedrock of the business. 
Yeah. So it has to be robust and you have to make sure everything is working before you flip on the lights. Yeah. But digital is completely opposite. Digital, you're not waiting for a perfect moment, right? The, in digital, it's very important to get started with whatever you have and get going, right? Yeah. It, for people coming from traditional business backgrounds, it's a very uncomfortable idea to start with a half-baked idea or a half-baked process. Yeah. Uh, they're not comfortable with abstract. They're not comfortable with uh, things that are not completely uh, done and tested and proved. Yeah. So it's it's also that. So which why you need people who are comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah. You need yeah. people who are comfortable with abstract. Uh, you need people who are a bit bold and willing to take chances. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very different mindset that you need uh, in order to make that digital unit successful. Just having a digital unit independent in itself is not a success formula. You also need to have the right mindset of people in that to be successful. A couple of our competitors who I will not name uh, are currently um, having a bit of a mishmash situation. <laughs> and what I've heard is that you know they're struggling and I'm sure they know what to do next. So I think that's that to me encompasses what you said last. Really encompasses a massive, massive difference between digital and IT, which is IT is about uh, perfection. IT is about really having a very, very robust system. Digital is almost a mindset where uh, the approach is deploy or die, right? So uh, I think that's that's a good way of looking at it. So just to summarize again, so one is uh, the CEO should should have that kind of top-down serious mandate, which potentially manifests in things like uh, the CEO having KPIs, which I think we, we, you talk about that in, in your book as well. Uh, the CEO allocating budgets and a separate team for it. Uh, number two being digital, being a separate function as opposed to really uh, being put inside a BAU function like IT or, uh, or marketing, for example, right? Uh, and number three, uh, really being, uh, you know, crafting digital separate from IT. I think these are the three things that, uh, that you're calling out as being foundational. I just want to add one more thing. I just remembered, I think, which is equally important. I should have mentioned it early on, but it's not too late. And I'm just going to narrate a very small uh, learning here. So when I was in Yahoo, our, our biggest uh, client at the time was uh, Procter & Gamble. We're doing some fantastic work with them. But for a while, uh, Procter itself, globally, uh, while we were overseeing the Asia-Pacific region, was struggling to get digital done. So they had done workshops, they had done offsites, fancy offsites, take to you know some place, a nice hotel, uh, pamper them, have the best of digital speakers come and talk, uh, do all kinds of sessions. People would go away and nothing would happen. <laughs> and and they would, and this is what I've learned from asking one of them: what, how, how did PNG become successful at adopting digital? So two things, uh, one of course is a, is a key driver, which is what they started doing is they started uh, adding KPIs, performance KPIs yeah. in every single individual, yeah. right? And not only adding KPIs to their uh, performance appraisal, also given an increased weightage, disproportionate weightage, while the contribution to business probably would be relatively uh, smaller than what they were, you know, BAU stuff that they would be doing. But in terms of weightage in your performance appraisal would have a significantly uh, higher proportion. Yeah. That, I think, was a, a very important uh, step. And I, I kind of almost went, aha, you know, it does, you know, it's kind of almost like common sense, but none of us think of it. I yeah. think that is definitely, uh, I would say, very important uh, if you need to get it done. 
I think the second one, which I think you're alluding to, and I was kind of hinting at was, this has to be a top-down approach. It will not work uh, with um, bottom-up. A bottom-up will not work because it's a concept that's not understood. Um, so it won't work bottom-up. Uh, most of us human beings are change resistant. We don't want to change. And change, uh, a persuasive change, yes, is possible. Uh, but it will take many, many years to change through persuasion. Yeah. And the world is not going to wait for you to change, right? There are more dynamic companies. The circumstances are dynamic. And you might just miss the boat if you're going the persuasive road. Yeah. I think this, I'm not advocating for a, a dictator boss. But um, what I've learned and seen what works is uh, the management of the company needs a very strong, unequivocal uh, mandate to say, um, I don't want to hear no, this has to get done. Yeah. So that's very important. So while, like I said, it's, you necessarily need to have focus of the consumer, but you also need to send a very clear signal internally that you're not going to tolerate a no. Yeah. You want results, right? So I think those two KPIs and a very clear mandate from management, especially from the CEO, I think are also very key ingredients to a successful digital business. Perfect. In Perfect. a large enterprise. Yeah. So, I mean, we have the foundations now, but as you sort of go along uh, the digital transformation journey, one of the classic uh, sort of uh, things I hear when I speak to uh, industry leaders, for example, is really the pressure to balance let's say business as usual or revenue if i can put uh, put that word to it uh, you know vis-a-vis -vis, uh, customer experience and the right thing to do or, or the better thing to do from a longer term perspective so what have been your experiences here and how have you really tried to balance uh, this and you know uh, uh, some things any, any insights there from you so let me kind of comment on that um both from FMCG, which I had large exposure when I was in Yahoo to insurance after I left Yahoo. I think what digital does, uh, it opens new audiences, which are not available to BAU channels uh, or distribution um, outposts. Secondly, uh, it, it kind of, uh, I was trying to say it opens up a revenue stream and new product innovations that otherwise would not be possible. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're only thinking of uh, a traditional channel. I think those are, uh, that's how I would, I would recommend um, CEOs and company management to think of. It's not a threat because it is misunderstood. Uh, people, if you remember, if you go back and not just in India, I was in India back when this was happening, there was a scare, I think around Y2K around the time that, uh, computers will make uh, people lose their jobs. Do you, would you remember that scare around yeah, the world? Right? The way they talk about AI today, they, they spoke of computers two decades back, right? Right, yeah. So people thought, now computers are going to come and, oh my God, my, I'm going to lose my job. That never happened, right? In fact, employment only increased. Yeah. Uh, new, new professions were created. Uh, hardware maintenance guys and all, the, all those people never existed before. Uh, I think the same view is what I'd advocate, that don't be afraid of the digital. It complements your current business. Yeah. It brings in new consumers to the business. It gives you an opportunity to launch new products to your business. And the revenues that accrue from digital are not cannibalizing 
yeah. uh, your current channel. They will be small, but what is there to say that cannibalization is not happening between a Kirana shop and a Big Bazaar? Yeah. And anyway, the market is so vastly underpenetrated, uh, at least in a place like India, that it doesn't really matter if there's a little bit of short-term cannibalization, right? Correct, correct. And you'd rather cannibalize your own market share yeah. than having someone else cannibalize your market share. Yeah. Right? So, so I think you should not... Coming to your point of customer experience, I don't see consumer experience or customer experience, if you're in B2B, uh, to be at odds with uh, revenue. I mean, the more easier, and this is more like a generic statement, uh, which applies even to digital, is the better your customer experience, the more revenue that you'll realize. Exactly. There's, however, one, one distinction uh, that we need to draw here. Unlike for traditional channels, which offers a better shopping experience, in digital, the digital experience often is the brand. Your brand is not your ad in, for digital businesses, right? Yeah, you can do advertising. I'm sure it does help. I'm, I used to be an ad guy myself. But it's not like in the, in the back in the day when your advertising would define who you are. Yeah. Today, it actually predominantly it's your digital experience uh, defines who you are. Yes, and then reinforced through advertising. So that's one key thing to keep in mind. And can you also talk about, uh, I think your book, you call it Bling versus the Iceberg, uh, which is the, uh, this, uh, you know, the sort of temptation to chase down uh, uh, quick wins and, 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 and show progress, whereas that really actually hampers long-term progress. So that, I thought that was a very interesting point that the audience would love to hear and understand as well. Five, six years ago, I think when digital was really getting a lot of uh, query um, or attention uh, and still ban being bandied as uh, something important to do, what was happening in boardrooms around the world and most people in boardrooms are not native to digital. Uh, but I think most of them are wise enough to understand that their, their companies need to adopt digital and had given very clear mandate to their management that they need to adopt digital, right? So this is like board telling their management and the CEO, like get on the digital thing, you know, go figure it out what that needs to be done and just get on with it. Yeah. So the pressure coming from the board and I happen to be an actor around the time, so I'll make a comment slightly later. Um, the CEO, and rightfully so, because if your board is pushing you and advocating for you to do this, and willing to give you the money to do it as well, yeah. then um, you had to act on it and show results. And this is where you know the quick win uh, trap um, comes into play. Yeah, because they had to show something quick yeah. to the board that something is being done. And obviously, the first thing that they would show people is like hiring somebody. So in the case of AXA Singapore, they hired me and I was like one of the proof point that AXA Singapore was moving ahead on digital, which is true. Yeah. But that in itself is not enough, right? So the management was pressure. Okay, you've hired someone, so tick the box. Okay, you've made the first right move. What else are you doing? And this is where a lot of companies, not just in insurance, fell into the fancy quick win trap. So they would do a glossy things. And one of the early glossy things a lot of companies started doing is building uh, digital listening uh, command centers. Uh, so you would have this very fancy hall or a room with large screens, um, with all these social listening uh, graphs popping up on your screens. Uh, and a bit of SEO tracking uh, happening on big screens. 
Uh, so was it really necessary to invest uh, a sizable chunk of money? Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's hundreds and thousands of dollars where all you need is your regular laptop or desktop uh, where you just have access to this tool and you can pop it up on your screen as and when you require it. Yeah. Don't really need a room for this, right? Because what is the outcome you want? You want to know, uh, let's say, for example, how many, do you have positive mentions? Do you have negative mentions? And you have negative mentions and you want to manage it, right? That's, that's what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. To do that, why do you need a room? Why do you need all the fancy screens and all that drama of all that stuff? I'm just giving you because that was one of the early uh, fancy bling things that a lot of companies around the world are guilty of. That's not, I'm saying not all of them just ended up being blingy. Yeah. Um, some of them went on to do really milk uh, um, a lot of ROI. And Intel is one such example. Jamshad, who manages it in Singapore for Intel APAC, I think has done a wonderful job in not really doing it for the sake of. Uh, a quick win and a nice fancy shiny toy to show to his management, uh, but really has made a lot of business value for the company. Yeah. But I, I think because of Jamshed's, uh, are you, you've heard of Jamshed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jamshed Wadia. So I, I think because he was well-trained, well-skilled, uh, obviously well-intentioned, he was able to maximize and understand the true value that he needed to give back to the company. Yeah. But a lot of people, like I said, if you're coming from different backgrounds and you put into a digital role, and if your boss is telling you, I want a fancy room that looks like fancy and all this fancy, I'm sure they, they won't use the word fancy, but they meant that's what it needed to be. Then that's what a lot of companies uh, ended up doing. Yeah, got it, got it. So uh, one question that I've also heard people ask is, uh, you know, when you look at digital, how does it merge effectively with uh, with the traditional ch uh, channels, for example? Like one question that gets asked is, do you even need a call center? Uh, you know, why do you need agents? Of course, these are some broader questions that get asked. So how do you see these two uh, interplaying with each other? Is is one redundant or, or do they complement each other? Uh, your, your views on that? So in the tangible product world, I think the the perfect intersection between digital and offline is your uh, uh, click and pick up, click yeah. and collect, yeah. right? Or curbside pickup, as okay. they say in the US, right? So you can order online and, uh, you know, you drive up, it's ready, you just pick it up and you go. Uh, and the, what's happening with the Swiggies of the world, you order online and, and it comes home. So that is a perfect handshake between the digital world and the real world. Yeah. Now coming to call center, uh, where there is uh, a lot of selling. What I think is going to happen uh, in the, I think the next revolution BPO is coming. And this is something that we have been advocating long before Corona hit us. Yeah. That we need to move to a variable cost model in the BPO business. And what does that mean is by moving the roles to people calling from their house. Like why do you really need to be in the office? It's not like you can uh, chit chat and have uh, debates with your colleagues, right? I mean, usually most of us like to go to office because it offers you an uh, enriching environment of not just collegial uh, relationships, yeah. but also the ability to banter, to debate, to, to contest uh, ideas and being able to derive a much better idea. That's why you, but in a call center, you don't want people to chit chat and neither you look at the phone, right? They're, 
We want them to be focused. We want them to deliver high productivity. Just talk, look at the screen, get the work done, and just go home, right? So why do you need to be in the office for that? You don't need to. So if you can work from home and start to unleash them as entrepreneurs, that you can make money working from home, and we'll pay you obviously some base because you have fixed costs of buying Wi-Fi, you need to buy a desktop, whatever that, or devices that you need, yeah, we'll pay you some fixed costs, but a large part of it will be performance-based. I think with coronavirus, I think now that is going to become a reality. So a lot of BPOs need to watch out that this model will threaten the current uh, traditional BPO structure, not just in India, um, around wherever countries have large BPO operations, you know, Philippines is another country. This is the second change that will hit BPOs is AI-led, uh, NLP-led robots, yeah. call robots, are now uh, entering the call center space. So a lot of us face um, a bunch of calls are useless. Either the phone numbers are wrong or not being picked up, or they probably were interested at the time they fill in the form, but at the time of calling, they're no longer interested. So there is a degree of, uh, of callers which are not interested in what you're trying to say. But you're making uh, an effort to call them, to clarify, and then you know, uh, delete the names from the prospect list. If you kind of delegate all that work to a machine, and machine does the up, upfront uh, validation of a valid lead, then why do you need so many people in your call center? Yeah. Right? And that's already beginning to happen, right? Not just in India. It's been, so those are two things that BPOs need to watch out for if they need to survive in the future. One is they need to relook re at their cost structure, which is a business model, essentially. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a big hit. But from a digital point of view, uh, the AI plus NLP will, uh, will have a significant reduction in headcount. Um, so it'll become more efficient. All the wastage will be uh, managed by a machine and the high quality prospects can be managed by uh, human beings, which means unemployment in call centers will go down. So all the people who are fairly making good living on BPOs will also have to start thinking of either you become the best in your game or you need to start thinking of another career. Perfect. I think this is super insightful, uh, Vasu. Thank you very much. I think we covered the entire spectrum, starting with the challenges to how do you think about this, to the pillars, uh, to some of the executional elements, uh, all the way to how do you marry traditional uh, channels into digital. So super insightful. Uh, before we close, uh, just one last uh, question or, or rather more for our listeners. Um, uh, I think you started uh, yourself a podcast recently, the Digital Insurance and Marketing Podcast. Uh, so maybe, you know, a quick word on uh, introducing the podcast to the audience and who should listen in. Uh, that'll be great as well. Thank you for, uh, for bringing this up. Uh, I, when I was trying to learn, you know, uh, while I've been in the digital insurance for the last seven years, I never considered myself that I know everything and I always, I'm constant fear that the, the ground is shifting under my feet. So I'm always, because digital, the nature of digital is like, that. like you're also, yeah. right? It's, it's, the terrain is always shifting. So when I started looking to where can I learn um, what's happening? And there's some learning that can come from blog reading. And uh, there's a lot of learning that can come from people's experiences. <laughs> And I thought that the, the people's experiences learning, there's a gap. 
there are not enough uh, uh, places where we can listen to an experience. Because uh, I think digital is an apprentice profession. I mean, relatively, like like MBBS or, or studying right, or a doctor where in the world is, you need to go to the hospital and work with patients to learn. It's not that you read a textbook and you become a doctor. Right? Which means it's very important to learn from practitioners, not from blogs. And while the blogs might be written by practitioners, it has written a form of communication, has a certain limitations. So that is the gap that I wanted to, to fill. And I think also podcasts also can be more inspiring uh, than a blog. Yeah. And I also felt that uh, there is a, a whole generation of people who will uh, succeed me and, and my fellow chief digital officers and CMOs in the insurance world who probably could use some guidance. Um, and that's a podcast. Uh, the role of the podcast is to fulfill that. Gap. Perfect. Thank you very much. I think the first couple of episodes are out as well. I saw that uh, one you posted as early as this morning. So for all those listening in, uh, you know, do, do join that post podcast as well and, and give it a listen. Vasu, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much once again uh, for taking your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Zubra. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me and I'm happy to share some of my experiences. Perfect. Perfect.